So I'd like to talk this evening for maybe 25 minutes, 30 minutes or so, and then leave 10 or 15 minutes for us to talk together about the theme of transforming our relationships with people whom we find to be opponents or even enemies. In other words, people that we have conflicts with or difficulties with. And for me, this is one of the um, really important applications of our practice on the cushion, our silent practice, to our life in the world. Uh, And it's really very directly related to what's perhaps the fundamental uh, teaching of the Buddha. Most of you know the Four Noble Truths, which is a teaching that there is suffering, that there are causes to suffering, that there's the possibility of um, peace or freedom or transforming suffering. And there's a very practical way to do that. Now, when we look to our lives or the world, we see that a great deal of our suffering is connected with our conflicts. And certainly not very hard to look into the world and see the, um, the way that oppositions, the creation of enemies, is um, right at the heart of a great deal of the uh, suffering in the world. And so if we can learn to better take whatever oppositions form, whatever ways that we find ourselves uh, forming, Um, enemies or opponents or just people who are difficult, at least for us (laughs) and sometimes for others, Uh, if we can somehow bring our qualities of mindfulness and compassion, wisdom, equanimity to those kind of relationships, it's a very powerful uh, fruit of of our time on the cushion. And it starts to change those kind of relationships from Problems, curses, wouldn't it be nice if this person moved or worse? It it changes those kind of relationships into situations in which which we can actually learn and grow. And it actually can be a tremendously exciting part of of our lives, of our spiritual practice. Not something that we generally want. We just basically want our difficult people, our opponents, our enemies to stop being the way they are, right? But, but, and so what I want to suggest is that there are a number of steps. And here I'm going to be uh, pretty brief. That we could, we could spend a week on this. I'm going to be pretty brief, but give an outline. And I gave a handout, which is sort of like the, the skeleton of my talk, which takes us through six very concrete steps for transforming our relationships with uh, so-called opponents or, 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 or enemies. And it's interesting for me that in, I've been reflecting on this a lot uh, and partly because I've been developing a piece uh, on the topic for uh, Tricycle Magazine, which I th- hopefully will come out in, in August. And during that time, I've had more conflicts with people than I had in the preceding, <laughs> in the preceding uh, many, many months, just in the last week or two. You know, it's been really interesting. And I also, I, I may, if I have time, I'll tell you about this later. Um, not very long ago, I had a long protracted uh, dream which involved me relating to George W. Bush. <laughs> and and it, was, it was all about this topic. And it actually, we actually really were quite 
uh, friendly while being able to be very clear and firm about differences, what I thought was right and wrong and so forth. I may tell you that dream maybe near the end if I can work that in, but it's really interesting. So what I'd like to invite you to do is to um, reflect as we go through these steps and as we go through the talk, reflect on your own personal example, if, if that still feels appropriate, that you may have reflected on at the end of the meditation. See if you can actually apply concretely the exploration of this area to your own situation. That's what, I, that's what I would invite. Now, the usual way that we work with people with whom we're in opposition or people we tend to call opponents or enemies is very simple. Uh, basically, it comes down to I'm right, they're wrong. I'm good. They're bad. I have great intentions. They probably or certainly don't. I'm doing as well as I can. They're totally messing up. This is called dualism. <laughs> this is, uh, and it's, it's extremely common. And it's also quite sobering to see how, even though we may have sat on the cushion for months and years, sometimes we go right into that mode, don't we? It's, it is sobering, but it's, it's actually a, a deep conditioning that we have. And it's actually not all that different from what we do with something in our own personal experience that we don't like, right? So uh, what I want to suggest is that, is that there's a connection between how we are with a inner state, with how we are with an outer person uh, with whom we have difficulties. That's, we'll, we'll come back to that. So we have this very uh, usual way of forming a dualism, a kind of a, um, a moral hierarchy. I'm good, they're bad. It's probably, you know, at the extreme, it is very clear in the relationships between states or nations, of course, you know, where enemies are formed, where there's total self-righteousness on, sometimes on either side, and where there's tremendous suffering connected with that whole setup, right? We know that very, very well. You know, when I was reflecting on this, I looked at a book from a while ago called Faces of the Enemy. Some of you know by Sam Keane, uh, which is, uh, ha has, among other things, a collection of the many, probably hundreds of propaganda posters from the 20th century. And so you see, we see how this forming the opposition takes place. And we can also know how, how deeply connected it is with um, suffering and even, even horror. So we see, we, might, we see in those posters, we see the Nazis portraying Jews as vermin. We see um, uh, sort of newspaper cartoons from the early 20th century showing African-Americans as apes or gorillas, very common at that time. We see, you know, you can just imagine, we see uh, what, um, you know, Germans in the First World War as barbarian Huns. We see, you know, Americans in Vietnam as gangsters. We see uh, Soviets as bears. We, you know, you can, can go down the line. You see, you know, Muslims as evil terrorists and, and so forth. And it's... Um, it's a very common situation. Those, those posters show the extreme. So how do we work with that? How do, we, how do we kind of shift out of that model? 
Well, one of the ways that I found myself exploring this was about 10 years ago, I was in a situation where I was working with a, a boss who I thought was a very poor listener. That was my perspective. And I had to meet with him for about two hours every two weeks for two years. This is when I honed my opponents and enemies practice. <laughs> and I, it became like a laboratory. And at first, I just found myself kind of butting heads. But then with the help of a mentor, I took the situation as a chance to learn and explore. And, that, and it really led me to develop these steps, which I, which I have now. They look all easy and crystal clear in the handout. But in actuality, it was a mess for quite a while, as you can imagine. I mean, conflicts are often messy. And this sort of represents some clarity that I had about the process, which I'm sure many of you have worked with this and have a lot of wisdom and clarity as well. But I wanted to uh, bring this to, um, to, to offer this structure. So the first thing that I was able to start with, and in, in this, I'm going to camouflage the situation and the name. So I'm going to call this person Steve. That's not his real name, and I'm not going to tell you the exact situation to protect the innocent and the guilty <laughs> and, uh, and so forth. And also, I know sometimes these are taped and they're on the Internet, and who knows, <laughs> who knows what, who hears what. So I have to be a little bit, a little bit careful. Uh, so the first thing that, that I was encouraged to do, particularly by a mentor I was working with, was actually to take the situation as a, as a learning experience. And this is, uh, this is, again, goes against the grain. It's to say, I might actually learn something from how I am with these people. And there was, uh, you know, the learning could be, I can learn what is in myself that I bring to the situation. I can do a certain kind of inner work, see how I project or how I you know, what, what, what is there in my own inner experience? I can learn to be more skillful in my communication and outward, out, act outwardly. I can learn better how to work with conflict. And so it really, um, I, I, I moved away from the usual stance of just seeing this as a problem that I want to get rid of and saying, let me learn. I was in this relationship with this guy for two years, you know, as a, as a boss. I couldn't, you know, I, it, I had to do it. You know, and many of our conflicts are ones that we can't get out of. Now, ideally, the situation is one in which we can, you know, maybe an ideal situation that you might possibly find with a family member or partner is one in which we can do both the a kind of inner work, you know, do our own personal work to see what we bring to the conflict, how we make it worse and so forth, what we might do to make it better, and in which maybe in which both of us might do that. That would be, that's beautiful. Like if some, some close relationships, that can really happen. And it's a beautiful way to work with difficulties. Both people doing inner work, seeing the responsibility. And then the, and that's really the, the first through the fifth step. The sixth step, I've sort of brought a lot together. That's the more interactive work that we do. That's working with conflict, working with speech, and so forth. And again, we could take uh, many, many evenings just on those topics. And ideally, uh, we would be able to do both that work. We'd be able to talk about it with, let's say, a partner, a family member, a friend, and we'd do inner work together. We'd learn how to speak wonderfully with 
the Buddha's right speech or wise speech. We'd use nonviolent communication. We'd be tremendously skilled in conflict work. Um, and that's kind of like, in some sense, a best case scenario. Most of the situations aren't like that. You might consider how much yours is. In my situation with this guy I'm calling Steve, he actually didn't even want to talk about it. That was hard, right? It's hard. It's like I had to do, in a sense, there wasn't, I, I could um, learn how to speak more carefully. I could do inner work, but I didn't have so much of a choice about working it out um, interactively. You know, some of you may be able to do that, that better. And so I focused especially on my own side of it, as it were. And so I formed the intention to learn from the situation. Um, I remember there was a, there's a beautiful quotation from the 8th century Buddhist teacher Shanti Deva who talks about enemies, much like the Dalai Lama does. If you've ever heard the Dalai Lama talk about, you hear him talk about the Chinese, my friend, my enemy, <laughs> he says. And he, and he really has a relationship. It's very much like the very much like what you see if you look at the work of Gandhi, her king. Gandhi talked about his relation with the British. I want to have, I want to interact with the British in a way so that I can be very firm about Indian independence, but in the long run, my current opponent can be a future friend. Martin Luther King talked in a very similar way about the Southern racists. You know, he, did, he wanted to not defeat them, but set in motion a process that ideally led to connection. And you may have had that experience where people that you had difficulties with, if you stayed in there, if you respected the person, sometimes, and this is true for me, some of my closest connections are people that I've had friction with but stayed in the process with. Of course, that's true of close relationships, right? You know, that if we can find ways to do that. So Shanti Deva from the 8th century said, I should be happy to have an enemy, just like a treasure appearing unbidden in my home. An enemy helps me with my conduct of awakening. <laughs> What's it like to take that attitude you know, to, to your opponent? Not the usual one. So the first step is really intending to learn, considering that it's at least a remote possibility that we can learn from the person that we're having difficulties with. Again, kind of a radical step in some way, right? But if we, that's the first step. The second that I mention here is that there are a lot of reflections that we can do that help us to ease the tendency to form a really strict dualism. We can reflect in various ways. I'm not, not going to go over all these, but there are different reflections that we can do which are extremely helpful. You know, we might first uh, reflect on what, it, what do we imagine the experience is with the other person. Often we don't do that really, do we? What is the experience like of the other person? Can we imagine the experience from the inside? That's a hard, hard practice, but it's, it's an important one. Or if we can't do that immediately, we can reflect on the fact that in this conflict, we're both suffering. That there's suffering on both sides, and we can reflect on that. We can also reflect that, you know, that I might possibly become friends with the opponent. How would I like to act with a future friend? Again, it can really, these kind of reflections can, can sometimes ease or sometimes even help us pierce through that tendency to, to, to split. 
sometimes, and I could understand this, how can I understand the, what the other person is doing? Not so much in terms of the simple situation of this other person being bad and me good, but how can I understand our interaction as connected with a larger system? And we might imagine the causes. This person had this upbringing or this, these experiences that led the person to be as the person is. And, and similarly for me. So, so those reflections really can help. We can reflect on how I might tend when I get really triggered to focus on a particular negative quality of the person. So that becomes all there is, right? You know how we do that? That other person is whatever. Pushy, arrogant, obnoxious. Fill in the blank, right? And that's all there is. We don't see the other qualities. And so sometimes reflecting on the variety of qualities can be very helpful. We can also reflect on how I might not have total omniscient knowledge and be completely correct about everything. I know this is unlikely, but, but it's a useful reflection. Is there the possibility that I might have at least 5% or 10% be not totally in the right? A radical reflection, right? Can we imagine that? And then uh, a very challenging one that some of us may, may, may use, can I reflect on the other person as connected with the sacred? You know, using whatever language makes sense to you. Can I reflect on this other person as being, we would say, in Jewish or Christian or Islamic tradition, we would say being a child of God. Or in Buddhist tradition, we would say, can I see the Buddha nature in this person? No way. <laughs> or whatever. You know, can, I, can I reflect on that? And, and see that. And it's a very, very challenging reflection. The third step begins to, to be more experiential. The third step is to look into what we actually experience with our, with our person that, we, that we're in opposition with. You know? so, so for me, this was kind of a revelation. What I started to find, like when I looked into my experiences with this person, Steve, who was... Who was an authority position in relation to me, I started to find that what was really, really difficult, which I attributed just to his nature, right? What I found was that what was difficult was that I had particular experiences. I had anger, frustration, um, fear, or other kinds of difficult experiences, and that what was difficult for me was being with these experiences. Do you get the, the shift? that what was difficult was the fact that I was having difficult experiences. They happened to be connected with the fact that he was nearby. <laughs> you know, but, but in some way, if I could have a different relationship to those experiences, to, to the anger, the fear, the frustration, and so forth, I might have a very different relationship with that person. So I began to see that at least part of the way to work with it was to see how can I work with these particular experiences? Again, it's, a, it's a quite a radical shift. And again, I'm not saying that this is all that we do. And I'm also not at all saying that other people are not um, responsible for conflicts. You know, that the, but, but that part of the way that we can work with this is to see this as partly 
a question of how we work with these difficult experiences, these very individual experiences. And so then we move in a way to the fourth step, which is that we become students of our difficult experiences and particularly how we become reactive. How when he says something, I just get infuriated. Or when this is done, it triggers my frustration. We start to become really close students and I, I often like to say, and this is not maybe what you first came to, to the center for, but that a really central part of our practice is to become really experts on our own patterns of reactivity. We look at them over and over again and mindfulness gives a very, very powerful tool to do that. And again, I think we also bring out the beautiful qualities, the, the joy, the happiness, the peace, the equanimity, but a large part of our practice is to see what kinds of patterns I have that trigger me, that lead me to be reactive, and what, what those patterns are. So, for example, in my experience, when I was with this guy Steve, over and over again, I would, I would start to, I had to take public transportation to get there, and I would, you know, partly I would reframe the whole day. I would say, okay, Donald, you really love meditation, and sometimes you say, you don't have, an, you know, I don't have enough, I want more time for meditation. Then I could say, okay, today, the day of your meeting, which is like, you know, with the transportation and the meeting, it's like four or five hours. This is a retreat day. <laughs> and so I would, I would do my meditation in the morning. I would do, uh, you know, walking meditation to get to the public transportation. I'd go, you know, I'd do walking meditation through the streets of uh, Oakland and so forth. And I, would, and I would try as much as I could to really have a lot of mindfulness during the meeting. You know, there are various ways to, to do that. And so I begin to study. I started to notice some patterns. You know, and again, I'm, I'm taking two years of experience into a short description. This took a lot of time. I, and, I, and I had a mentor who was really helping me. But I started to notice, oh, when we're talking and I make a point and he instantly changes the subject, I go somewhere. <laughs> Namely, I go, you know, and I found for myself that I tended to go towards um, mm, emotional withdrawal and um, kind of being in a position of distanced moral superiority. <laughs> mm, and I, and I, uh, I noticed myself doing that over and over again. So, oh, we have a reactive pattern. Yes. You know, we, have, we have cited a reactive pattern. Yes, let's, let's look at it. And I, and I got to study that over and over again. And, that, and lo and behold, it happened elsewhere as well. It wasn't just isolated to my relationship with Steve. And I started to know, oh, yes. And I, basically, I started to illuminate this pattern, which was, you know, I wasn't totally happy to discover it. But, but part of the um, work with people with whom their difficulties are in conflict is that it actually is tremendously exciting to find a different way to be with a situation that often just leads to stuckness and suffering. So I actually found it tremendously exciting, although difficult to start seeing these patterns. So, so in some way, that's the fourth step. And it takes a lot of study, a lot of mindfulness. It really helps to have a guide or a mentor, a teacher, a peer, someone you have lunch with every week and talk about it who's also into mindfulness 
and into um, exploring reactive patterns. And, and you, we work together, you know, we, we, uh, we explore it. So that I um, used to actually have a lot of interest. Oh, what am I going dis- to discover about my reactive pattern today? And it actually was, um, was really interesting because I didn't, I didn't know a lot of what I was finding. So that's, that's, that's kind of at the core of, of this inner work. It's really studying the reactive patterns. I also want to mention the fifth step, which is that it's really important, I think, to complement the, stud- the study using mindfulness of reactive patterns with the cultivation of beautiful qualities, of uh, qualities of joy or compassion or loving kindness, both for oneself and for others, and sometimes to use those in the moment. I think that there's a nice balance. Um, there's a nice balance between the two. Or it might be if you're really feeling a little bit, if we're feeling a little distressed by something, focus on the positive at times. You know, I, I remember there's um, um, a teacher named Michael Mead who lives in, lives in Seattle. And he, he's a, a poet and um, works a lot with mythology. And he, he has a statement which really stayed with me. He said, the, the greatest antidote to fear is beauty. And it's a way that if we're, that, that I think we need that kind of balance to really have the access to the positive. It's the same way that the Buddha gave loving kindness practice as an antidote to fear. You probably, if you've heard Gil, you've probably heard that story of how there were these monks and nuns who were practicing in the forest and they got spooked by a bunch of tree spirits who manifested horrifying visions and bad smells. And the monks and nuns went running back to the Buddha and he said, here's loving kindness practice. And they did this and to make a long story short, the tree spirits became their friends. That's a long, making a long story short, but but it's that that quality of the opening the heart to ha, to have the heart open for for the conflict for the difficulty both for oneself and for the other person I think is very very central to this work, and then the last stage I'll talk about briefly, but it's it involves here the use of speech of working with conflict in ways that can really um, again ease the dualism. And we know that language, when we're in conflicts, is so crucial, right? We know that we can use words that make things incredibly worse or that can really be healing. And, you know, it's interesting. Some of the conflicts I was mentioning involved email. Email is not great for this practice. I would, you know, but it was, it's, really, it's really an interesting thing. How can, you know, I found that one or two words on email and people can go somewhere for a week, right? And, and so, so this last step involves how do we really take our speech, our interaction as a practice? For me, it involved the balance uh, with Steve of trying to be both firm and non-reactive and non-polarizing. Not so easy. You know, so for example, when he would, when I would say something and he would not listen, I would start to notice, oh, I'm starting to get reactive, but I had brought the whole process into enough slow motion so I could notice it starting to happen, which is what occurs when you look at it enough. You can start to, the whole thing gets into slow motion. You can say, do I want to go there? Some of you might say yes, (laughs) but but I would say, no, I don't think so. And I think I'll, I'll rather, let me say, 
Steve, um, I'm not sure that you heard what I was saying, but this is a really important point for me, and I'm going to keep, I want to keep making it. <laughs> so that's not, you know, that's not um, polarizing so much, but it's really stating, and there are a lot of <clears throat> skillful uses of speech that can do that. That's actually the same thing that happened in the dream I had with George Bush. Uh, and maybe, maybe I'll close with that, and we can explore communication. That in the dream, let me see, I think I have it here. In the dream, and I'm saying this, and some of you may have similar dreams with, I don't know, with people on the other side, with Barbara Boxer or Diane Feinstein or whatever, but so I'm not trying to be at all partisan here, but this is my own particular situation. I was practicing with George W. Bush, and here's, here's what it was. I was talking with him, and I was, um, I, I was telling him that I was reviewing the decision about invading Iraq, and um, I had developed a file on it. Uh, and um, I, in the dream I remembered, I, I didn't tell him that I was, uh, or I didn't want to tell him that I, in my own thinking, I had been making some comparisons with the initial stages of Nazi Germany. Uh, I didn't say that. That, that was sort of wise dream speech. <laughs> so, and, but I, and then I showed him my notes and my files. And, and I, then we started, then I said, I, I appreciated how he, ha, he himself had both conservative and liberal aspects. So that was, you know, you can think of that in terms of what I was talking about. I was not just pegging him and something, I was seeing a mix. And then we started talking about how we both had loved living in the country. He talked about Texas. And I talked about times, you know, uh, my family is from Maryland and Virginia, and I had lived a lot of the times in the Southern Appalachians. And I talked about how much I loved that. We really connected about living in the country, you know, and there were some other things said. And the whole feeling was one of uh, connection and respect, but also I was very firm on what I was saying. And there's something about that combination, which I think we're is maybe what we're invited to explore. How can, because I was able to be myself in the dream and really speak clearly, but not polarize. And there may be other interpretations of the dream that some of you may have, and I may have it totally off, but, but I, I tended to see it in connection with these themes. And that's really what we're, I think we're invited to do, whether it's with uh, a close friend, someone at work, any kind of difficulty or conflict. How can I speak? act in relation to that conflict so that I don't, as it were, give away my own truth or my own perspective, but connect with differences in a way which is not polarizing, not demonizing, not creating this um, dualistic opposition, but that permits a transformative process to happen both in myself and in the relationship. So I believe that that kind of practice is both very healing for ourselves individually and it's what we desperately in a way need for our world. So I want to invite you all, if you feel moved in this way, to take up this practice and will no doubt change at least Redwood City and maybe that will extend outward into the world. So thank you very much. (laughs) Please. How did your relationship with Steve come out? It got better. It took a while. And uh, it's a complicated story, but but basically 
you know, there was, there was a, there's an interesting way in which when we do inner work, we don't form so much friction with people. Have you noticed that? That there are ways in which, um, you know, although you know, the Buddha once said, I do not fight with the world, but the world fights with me. So doing this work doesn't mean that you won't have people be aggressive, attack you, misunderstand you, and so forth. But when they do that, you might not give them right back the same stuff they're giving you. And that changes things dramatically. And so I found that things eased and he um, eventually became much more supportive. We had better communication. So I I could see those changes. Any, any questions or reflections of any kind? Yes, I, I'm, I'm in a, an estrangement with a friend. Yeah. And, um, and what I'm, I'm finding is that, um, that balance between being firm and saying what you need to say, yeah. but... Um, not at the same time being loving. Do you have some or, or yeah. just some thoughts on that? Yeah, it's um, it, it's kind of a paradoxical combination, isn't it? Yeah. Being both very firm and very loving. I think that we have a lot of ideas that we can't do that, right? That we that being so being loving means you know giving up or something, or you know, or, or being submissive. Sometimes we think that. And it's, um, I think, I think we, I think it's a practice. All of this, I think I'm really encouraging us to see this not as something that we just do and we resolve our relationships, but an ongoing practice that we, that we may do for the rest of our lives. And it's both an inner practice and an outer practice. It really depends on having a lot of mindfulness. That's why the mindfulness practice that we might do daily really translates into the ability to work with conflicts in this way. Because I had to be able to notice what was going on internally. There's a way in which I think a kind of practice that we're invited to do is to do both inner practice and outer practice at the same time. That is challenging. You know, and it's, it's, not a, it's not a totally a beginning practice. I think sometimes beginning practice might be just to develop the mindfulness you know, and then at a later point, we can connect it with the interactive work. So to, um, and sometimes we have to develop the different pieces separately. So it can help sometimes to really develop the capacity for love, whether in loving kindness or in other ways, and maybe also separately develop the capacity for firmness. And then at a certain point, we start bringing them together because it's a hard combination. They're diff- and, and we can practice in different ways, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh talked about writing love letters to uh, politicians we didn't like. And I was thinking of them, they're probably like um, tough love letters. Because <laughs> the phrase tough love is an expression of that, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you, it's a great question. Please. I just come back from about a month of 
retreat work. And um, it's been really interesting. Um, it was I, I, I went pretty deep in this retreat. This is my third month long, yeah. in one, once a year. And um, I'm still making the same mistakes. <laughs> Absolutely, and sometimes slightly more intense because sort of that that cover that um, on the emotions yeah. or you know that it's sort yeah. of gone you know because I had to look at my subconscious so the yeah. sort of the super ego is a little dazed right now and doesn't right. know quite what right. to do so it's sometimes even more intense and then there's this enormous immediately almost turn turn around and there's this enormous peace and love yeah. and very very true yeah. and so it's it's hard I, I'm not necessarily I'm just saying it. I don't know why it's worth saying. But what, what is the interesting thing was that uh, on any retreat, at least for me, all I see in my mind are defilements, mm. what they call defilements, mm. defilements, defilements, mm-hmm. uh, which is not my experience. I'm not an evil person. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not an awful person. Mm. So my question is, and I also saw the defilements leave a little bit. Yeah, yeah. A little bit. Um, So my question really is, uh, how possible is it to really transform oneself, say even take one relationship or one kind of situation and really work outside? Does it really go from there to changing the underlying defilements as your, in your experience or you really have to do both? Because mostly what I have heard, mostly traditionally, you just basically work on the lots and lots and lots and lots of practice. You just get rid of the defilements that way and then yeah. it reflects up. This is very, in a sense, rather unusual, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of great questions and, and observations and so I think this will probably be our last one, and we could follow that. We could follow your comments and questions for half an hour, because there's a lot there. So I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, so one one piece that I heard was that uh, um, sometimes we think that our meditation will sort of solve our problems, and we'll we'll meditate whether it's for a week, a month, five years, ten years, three one-month retreats, and that, and so there's something that can be very sobering about coming back and then seeing that, mm, you know, um, we kind of left some habits at the door, and when we came back out there, they're there. So that's 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 hard. It's really a, it's sometimes a hard situation. It can be discouraging even. Right, and, and and so I, I appreciate your just naming it because it's it's um, it's there sometimes. Um, the the quick answer would be yes, I do see change and transformation. <laughs> so that in my own personal experience and in people I've worked with, that that would be the um, very brief answer. And yes, I think that it is one of the kind of practice I'm suggesting is a little bit different from the classical practice. It's really kind of a combination of inner work and outer work. Now, I think that's there some in the tradition. There is the emphasis on wise speech and uh, right action and so forth in the Eightfold Path. And it's also interesting to reflect that um, some of you may know, it's actually the uh, one, uh, Chan Amaro, who's coming, I think, was it uh, Saturday? Saturday, is a wonderful teacher. I really encourage you, if you have the time, to work with him. 
So he is connected with Achan Cha, who's Jack Kornfield's teacher, and also some of you know, may know Achan Semedo, who's an American uh, monk who lives in England now. And both Achan Amaro, who is the I think, co-abbot of the monastery in Mendocino County, and Achan Semedo. Achan just means teacher, I think most of you know from in, in the Thai tradition. They both, in their monastic communities, were having a certain amount of conflicts, even with these people, all these people working on their defilements and so forth, so-called. And they found it that it was actually, both of them did something, uh, and I think they were in communication. They both brought in, for their communities, training in nonviolent communication into their communities as an important part of their work there. So in a sense, they were going the same place that I've gone, which is to connect the inner work with some training in the outer work. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful model, and it may, be, it may be part of what's unique about the way that we, you know, in the coming years, express spirituality or express Buddhist practice, whatever, however you like to say it, that that combination is really important. And because I think it can t- uh, the outer work can touch areas that don't always get touched in the inner work. In the inner work, we sometimes don't get into the patterns and habits that are more relational. And, and that's, uh, I think many of us may know that, you know. And, and so finding ways to make the connection between the inner work and the relational work is really, really important. And uh, maybe, in, maybe the last thing to say is that the, uh, um, I found in my work with Steve and over those years of looking at those patterns. And it took, it, it took a it, it doesn't happen always immediately. The Dalai Lama once said, you should look at your practice in terms of looking for development or progress in five or 10 year periods, not look for instant weekend results. That's kind of American, isn't it? <laughs> you know, oh yeah, I'll do this weekend seminar. It's like this cartoon you might have seen where it shows two monks talking together and he said, I think the teacher said to bring a packed lunch. You know, so it's, uh, it, it takes some time, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's the, the mindfulness works, but it doesn't work immediately. It kind of works. We see the same pattern, whatever. It depends on the depth of the patterns. The shallow patterns we see a hundred times, five times, and something can shift sometimes. The really deep ones, we look at 500 times, a thousand times, 5,000 times. And, and then my experience is things do shift. We, we do, we, as we are a species that is capable of learning. <laughs> I believe that's my experience. That's what I've seen over and over again with people. But it, it doesn't happen. It's kind of like the old Christian gospel spiritual. It says, what, um, you know, uh, saying of God, he may not come when you want, but he's right on time. <laughs> you know that, some of you may know that old spiritual. And it's, so it's, uh, it's if, we, if we want things to happen to our agenda, there may be some frustration. But, but we have, so pa- that's why patience is actually a big virtue in this, in this practice. And just looking continually and also having teachers and mentors and friends who can give some perspective, really, really crucial for all this. And, and yes, I, I've seen really dramatic transformations, but it takes a lot of looking, a lot of 
continual attention. And I think if I could end just by saying that what I love by this kind of practice, it starts giving us some perspectives and tools so that our practice isn't just a half an hour on the cushion every morning, but it's more and more a good part of the day, really paying attention a good part of the day. And when we do that, things uh, it really things can happen more when we give more attention. And when we can start saying, okay, I'm going to work. This is continuous with my time on the cushion or, or whatever. And that's, to me, when we can start doing that, things start accelerating. And there, there can be some really some, some movements. Maybe I'll end with that.